0: This time, children, you are invited to head on down to kids' worship, and for the rest of us, I bet you can't guess where I'm going to ask you to turn, the Gospel of Mark. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be finishing up chapter 13 this morning. We started it last week. We're going to be finishing it up. We're looking at verses 24 to verse 37 this morning, so I encourage you to have your Bible open and follow along. Jesus in this section of Mark's Gospel has been telling us about what is to come at the end of time and uh, we pick it up in the middle of his teaching in verse 24. Mark writes uh, Jesus' words and he says, but in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven." And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father." Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. But what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." Father, as we look at Jesus' teaching here, we pray that you would give us grace to pay attention to your word as if Jesus were to come in the next half hour. And we pray these things in his name, amen. Well, whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed like we did this morning, we affirm together the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father from whence he shall return to judge the living and the dead. The return of Jesus is a truth that all genuine believers have affirmed throughout all time. We believe that we serve a savior who has not left this world permanently, but has uh, promised that he will one day split through the skies and come and establish his kingdom and his rule here on earth. When he spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14, he said these comforting words. Jesus said, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The return of Jesus is the ultimate hope of the Christian, the ultimate expectation of the Christian, and our ultimate comfort. And it's to that truth that Jesus points us in these verses this morning, the fact that he, the Lord Jesus, is coming again. Now last week we saw all of Jesus' instructions up to this point about things that are to come at the end of time that are to take place before his return. And we reminded ourselves that though the end times is a difficult doctrine, it's not meant to lead us into divisive debates, but rather the doctrine of the end times is meant to unify us in mutual encouragement and a common mission to see the gospel go out to all the nations. We also reminded ourselves that Jesus does not intend for this doctrine of the end times to lead us into debilitating defeat. When we are here in Mark 13, we're in some of the hardest passages to understand in all of the scripture. And we're not to be uh, too discouraged if we can't make sense of the fine print detail. Uh, I remember when I was preparing for my ordination exam, and I had some questions about the end times in my mind that I wanted to be, uh, get clarified before going into my exam. I called up my pastor mentor friend, Joel DeVinney, who's one of the wisest men I know, and I was asking him for clarification on things, and his response was classic. He said, Adam, I forget what I'm supposed to believe about those things. Uh, that can be us oftentimes when we think about these details. But I'm helped by what Alistair Begg says when he reminds us that the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And certainly, Jesus is speaking in such a way in these verses where we can understand the main emphasis of what he's getting across. He is coming again, and we ought to be ready. Jesus is coming again, and we ought to be ready. Now I want you to see, if you take a look at verse 24, as Jesus begins his teaching, he begins by telling us of the great sign that will come that will usher in his return. What will be the sign that will let us know that he is indeed coming? Verse 24, he says, in those days after that tribulation that he spoke about in the preceding verses, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Jesus says that the great sign of his coming will be this massive cosmic degeneration of the natural order of creation. Uh, Things will not uh, run the way that they normally do in our universe. Now, we can think of it and remember it by a rhyme that after tribulation, cosmic degeneration. After tribulation, Cosmic degeneration of the created order Now there's a lot of debate among very smart well-meaning Christians On whether Jesus is speaking literally here or figuratively Some think that he is speaking figuratively Adopting poetic language from the prophet Isaiah I think that Jesus is speaking literally here That he really means what he says uh, That the natural order of things will begin to degenerate I take that from other New Testament passages that seem to affirm that as well, like our scripture reading that we read in 2 Peter 3, where Peter tells us that the natural order of things will begin to dissolve. Uh, If you look at Revelation chapter 8 as well, the apostle John, seeing the vision of the future, sees that the creative order of things will begin to fall apart. Wherever you land in your interpretation, what is absolutely clear? is that there will be a sign even greater than the great tribulation that will be obvious to all that will usher in Jesus' coming. Because if you take a look at verse 26, verse 26, Jesus says after that sign, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Verse 26, Jesus shows us the nature, the nature of his return. What can we expect the return of Jesus to be like? He tells us the nature of his return in verse 26, first of all, that the nature of his return will be literal. He really will physically come back. Verse 26, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming. Some more liberal Christian scholars say that the return of Jesus will be more like a a, a spiritual uh, feeling. It will be a perception of the heart and not something literal. Uh, Jesus really, just as he came physically, just as he died physically, just as he rose again physically and ascended physically, he really will physically come back. It is a return that is literal, and secondly, it's a return that will be unmistakable. He says again in verse 26, they will see the man, Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It will be unmistakable. Now, some of you may have been raised in the tradition or trained in the tradition that you were taught that the return of Jesus will be a secret event, uh, that you might wake up one morning and discover that you missed it. Um, I don't think that the New Testament allows us to think of the return of Jesus that way. Uh, almost every passage, actually every passage that speaks about the return of Christ, uses language that is uh, is is absolutely phenomenal and and huge. Uh, Jesus says, "I'm coming with clouds. Great power, great glory." What he's doing there is he's adopting language from the Old Testament. Language used whenever God's glory manifested itself among his people. So if you remember, how did God manifest himself to Israel when he led them through the wilderness? Through a pillar of fire and cloud. When the temple was dedicated in Israel, what happened? The the glory of the Lord descended in a cloud and it was so great that the priests couldn't even go in to the temple to serve there. Jesus in speaking about coming with the clouds here, he's not talking about the white puffy clouds that we see up in the sky. He's talking about the Shekinah glory, the very aura of his holy power. Paul uses the same language in 1 Thessalonians 4 in speaking of the return of Christ. He will come in the air with the clouds, with the sound of loud trumpets. Uh, John, in Revelation 1 verse 7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. When Jesus comes, it will be a glorious event. All eyes will see him and he will be magnified for who he is, the King of kings and Lord of all oh, lords coming to the kingdom of this world. It's a literal. Uh, Coming, It is an unmistakable return, and it will also be a purposeful return. If you take a look at verse 27, verse 27, uh, Jesus tells us the purpose of his return. Verse 27, he says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He is coming again for the purpose to bring you to himself. He will come again for you And for all who trust in his name This is the great comfort of the Christian This is the great heart of the second return He is the heavenly husband Who gave his life to win his bride And when he comes back from heaven He is coming to embrace his bride to himself So that he might be with her no, I, I think so often when, when we talk about the end times, we can miss the forest. Uh, we can miss the forest for the, the trees. Miss the forest for the trees. Did I say that right? The trees for the forest, the other way around. We can miss the trees. You understand. It's been a long morning. I have a one-year-old who keeps me up at night. Uh, we get the details wrapped up in our minds, and we miss the main point. We get ourselves all tripped up in the, uh, when is the timing of the rapture going to be? When's the timing of the tribulation? What's the nature of the millennium? All things which are important that the scripture speaks to. But at the end of the day, the main point is that Jesus is coming back and he will be faithful to his people. And we can be absolutely sure of that. Jesus gets it down to the very fundamental level in verse 26 and 27. He's coming back and he's coming back for his own. A song that Hannah and I like to sing together is a country song by Josh Turner. I don't know if we have any Josh Turner fans in the room. Um, But it's a song called The Longer the Waiting. And it's a song that's sung from the perspective of a sailor who's going out to sea. Uh, And he's speaking words of reassurance and comfort to his wife as he prepares to leave for a long time. And the words of the song go, the longer the waiting, the sweeter the kiss. It's better, my darling. I promise you this. The next time I hold you, I'm not letting go. Will you wait for me, darling? I need to know. That's what Jesus is saying for us in his return. I'm going away for a long time, and I'm asking that you wait for me. And the, the longer that we are separated, the more sweet our reunion will be. And when I come, I will embrace you to myself, and I'm never, ever, ever going to let you Go, Now, in the song, the husband says in the event that he doesn't come back from sea, she's free to marry another, but Jesus doesn't give us that exception clause. Jesus tells us we can be absolutely certain that he is coming back, and that takes us to verse 28 uh, to 31, the certainty, the certainty of Jesus' return. If you take a look at verse 28, he uses the fig tree. And uh, the, the fact that the fig tree blossoms in summer as an illustration of his return. In verse 28, he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Uh, We learned this lesson a few weeks back when we looked at Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree. We learned that the fig tree is one of the few trees in the Middle East that actually changes and blossoms according to the season. Because of the climate in the Middle East, many of the trees actually just stay the same all year long. But the fig tree tells you when summer is coming by actually blossoming and beginning to ripen its fruit. Jesus is saying, just as you know summer is coming when the fig tree starts to ripen, so you can bank on my coming when these things take place. Take a look at verse 29. He says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. It is a certainty. Verse 30, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now there is a lot of debate among the commentators on the nature of what these things are that are mentioned in verse 29 and 30 and also what is this generation that Jesus is speaking about that will not pass away until these things take place. Are these things the things he's mentioning all the way back in the beginning, the, war, the wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, or is he speaking about the destruction of the temple? Is he speaking about the tribulation to come, or is he speaking about the great cosmic uh, degeneration that is to take place right before his coming? And this generation, is he speaking about the disciples? Is he speaking about the believers who still had the temple? Is he speaking about the gospel age? Is he speaking about the end of the end of the end of times? I leave all that up for your further study. I think the main point is absolutely clear. Verse 31 makes the point clear that he wants us to understand his coming is certain. Verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's not speaking his hunches. He's not making assumptions. He's speaking with divine authority, saying, you can bank on the fact that I will come back and bring you to myself. Well, it's a certain event, but is the event predictable? Is his return predictable? Verse 32 to 37 tells us, no, it is not predictable, but it is imminent. We see in verse 32 through 37 the imminence of Jesus' return. Now, imminence is a word that we rarely use in our day. It's a word that mainly only Christians use And speaking about Jesus' return. Um, if we want to understand the word imminence, we can think about uh, those of you who've had babies. Uh, you know that the doctor gave you a due date of when the baby was due. But just because the doctor gave that due date didn't mean necessarily that the baby was coming on that day. But as that due date drew nearer, the coming of the birth of the baby was imminent. It could happen at any time. And that is what Jesus is saying about his return in these verses. He begins actually in verse 32 by saying something that may shock us. Verse 32, he tells us that even he did not know when he was going to come again. Take a look at verse 32. He says, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Uh, I was having a a fun conversation with um, one of the staff here at Grace this week about this, about how is it possible that if Jesus is God, how is it possible that he did not know when he was going to come again? We're getting into the deep mysteries of the incarnation when we think about this, aren't we? That God, uh, Jesus is truly God and truly man. We can't fully understand how the two natures of Jesus dovetail together. Apparently in his humanity, this is one truth that he did not know. We'll never understand uh, the mystery of that. But one of the commentators this week, his name is James Edwards, was very, very helpful to me. He said that here, Jesus in in his humanity is a great example to us of resting content in the fact that the Heavenly Father knows. So Jesus in his humanity is content to say, I don't know, but the Father does know. And if we are in him, we have that same Heavenly Father, we can rest content knowing that the Father knows when Jesus will come back. And verse 33, Jesus says, if he doesn't know the time. Neither do you. Uh, Take a look at verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Jesus says, you have to be on your spiritual game because I could come at any time. So be on your spiritual game. I remember as a 10-year-old boy, I, I used to play golf with my grandfather, and like all 10-year-old boys, our attention spans are short, and sometimes it would take me longer than it should have to find my ball, which was often somewhere in three deep, three feet deep weeds. Um, and then when I did find my ball, it took me too long to hit it. I, you know, I'm, I'm there because you get nervous, you know, so I'm there like waggling, waggling. What you don't even know what that means? I'm, I'm shaking my club in nervousness before I swing. And I remember my grandfather used to say in his amazing patience, uh, he would say to me jokingly, son, are you going to play golf or are you going to whistle Dixie, is what he would say. I never understood what that meant, but it sounded good. And I knew well enough what he meant was, hey, the group behind us is getting closer and so is lunchtime. Please hit the ball. Jesus is essentially saying that, be on your game, live the Christian life, live on mission, don't sit around. Whistle and Dixie, live the Christian life. Uh, God has not told us when Jesus is coming because he doesn't want us to get spiritually lazy. He doesn't want us to be lulled to sleep. J.C. Ryle had a great comment on this verse. He said, there is deep wisdom and mercy in this intentional silence. We have reason to thank God that the thing has been hidden from us. Uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency. What a dreary prospect the early church would have had before it if it had known before for certain that Christ would not return to earth in their day. The hearts of men like Athanasius, Chrysostom, and Augustine might well have sunk within them if they had not been aware of the centuries of darkness through which the world would pass before their master would come to take back the kingdom. What a quickening motive, on the other hand, Christians have perpetually had for a close walk with God. They have never known in any age that their master might not suddenly come to take account of his servants. The very uncertainty has supplied them with a reason for living always ready to meet him. We have to always be ready because his return is imminent. And he tells us what our readiness looks like in verse 34 and 35. If you look at it, he says, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep." He has left the stewardship of his work and his house, his kingdom, in the hands of the church, and he has given to us all particular callings that we need to fulfill, particular spiritual gifts that we need to be exercising in ministry. And he tells us that we're all like doorkeepers who are just awaiting for him to come, that we might be found doing the work that he's given us to do and not asleep when he comes. I remember as a little boy when school was out in the summertime, I would wake every morning to a chores list that my mother left for me. And you better believe that I got those chores finished before my mom returned home from work. Why? Because I loved my mom. And because I loved my mom, I knew to fear her properly (laughs) if those chores were not done when I got home and the hand started going up on top of the fridge to grab the wooden paddle. Didn't want that. But because I loved my mother and I knew she loved me, I wanted to be sure that I did not disappoint her by leaving those chores undone. Jesus said, he's coming. Be about the work that I have given you to do until I come. He says in verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Two ways that the New Testament, in light of Jesus' return, tells us that we have to stay awake. Two ways. First, we are commanded that we must stay awake spiritually in light of Jesus' return. We have to stay awake spiritually. Now that is uh, predicated on the fact that you are awake at all, that you have been awakened, that you have actually uh, been made alive through faith in the gospel. You can't be awake unless you have been awakened. The, the eminency of Jesus' return, one of the purposes is meant to make us more urgent in our repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us a door of opportunity now until he comes to respond to the good news of the gospel, to repent and turn away from our sins and to trust in him as savior and Lord, understanding that when he died on the cross, he died for your sin, to take on the penalty of your sin upon himself. And he rose again from the dead so that through trusting in him, you too might rise into newness of life and the hope of eternal life. That is the most urgent uh, command and action that any of us need to take place this morning if we find ourselves not yet trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who have, the New Testament teaches us that in light of Jesus' return, we be careful that we not get lulled to sleep by our sin, by idols that can creep in from this world. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 13, striking verses, he says, you know the time and that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we had first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So how are we to live? Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not getting caught up in the sexual sin of our day, repenting of pornography. Repenting of affirmation of LGBTQ, of all of that lifestyle, keeping ourselves faithful to our spouse, being a, 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 someone who only has eyes for the one that God has given us. Not living in sensuality, just living off of our gut, making our decisions off of you know, however we, we feel on any given day, not in quarreling and jealousy. At our estranged relationships, we're seeking reconciliation, we're we're loving others as we've been called. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The passage that Chuck read for us, we saw Peter tell us in verse 11 of chapter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When he was only 16 years old, Jonathan Edwards wrote resolutions for himself. I think there were over 100 of them. And one resolution that he made as a 16-year-old, he said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. We keep ourselves faithful to Jesus. We don't allow ourselves to be drifting away, swerving away, lulled to sleep by the times in which we live. But keeping ourselves spiritually awake, keeping our hearts knit to him. This is a time for repentance. This is a time for prayer. This is a time for sanctification. We stay awake spiritually and we're also told that we must stay awake missionally, missionally. That we be about the great commission that Jesus has given us to do in our time, Uh, just as Paul wrote. Uh, to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter four verse five, he said, "As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." God has given you a particular calling, a particular ministry that only is yours and yours alone. He set you down in particular circumstances. He's surrounded you with particular people that you might be salt and light in all of those places to make Jesus known. He could come at any time. We want everyone that we can be privileged uh, to speak to, to know who he is so that they might be ready and that they might trust in him before he comes. We stay awake. Jesus is coming again. In the words of Josh Turner again, the longer the waiting, the sweeter the kiss, it's better my darling. I promise you this. Next time I hold you, I'm not letting go. Will you wait for me, will you stay up, will you stay awake, will you not be Flirting with other gods out there other things that are on offer, but will you stay faithful to me? I promise I'm coming again. I'm gonna bring you to myself and when we embrace I'm never gonna leave you again. I'm never letting go He is coming That coming will be literal. It will be unmistakable It will be purposeful to bring you to himself. It is something that is absolutely certain And it's a return that could happen at any time. This is our great comfort, our great hope, and our great expectation. And in light of it, we stay awake and we be on guard doing the business that he has given us to do. Let's pray.